Well, today we continue in the book of Hebrews, and uh, this, this particular passage of Hebrews marks a major shift in the discourse and content of the book. And so, to begin, I want to briefly review the first four chapters. We've covered a series of relationships between Jesus and God the Father, between Jesus and the angels, between Jesus and the rest of mankind, between Jesus and Moses, between Jesus and Joshua. And now we begin a new section covering the relationship between Jesus and Israel's priesthood, which is, it's a major theme in the book of Hebrews. It may be the theme of the book of Hebrews. Our passage today begins in chapter four with a brief meditation on the priesthood of Jesus and the implications of his priesthood for us. And then chapter 5 demonstrates what specifically has qualified Jesus to be our high priest. And so for the sake of clarity and, and to drive home the point that's being made, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it out of order. We're going to start with chapter 5 with the, the priestly qualifications of Jesus, and then we'll circle back to chapter 4 and apply his priesthood to our lives. All right? What is a priest? What is a high priest? Under the old covenant, the the high priest was the head of the Israelite priesthood. All priests were called to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. But the high priest had a unique role within the tabernacle and temple. He wore a, a unique set of garments. He was held to a higher standard of holiness. And he was the only priest permitted to perform certain rituals, most notably on the Day of Atonement. We read about the Day of Atonement earlier in Leviticus 16. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer a special sacrifice for his own sins, followed by a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, I want you to keep the Day of Atonement in mind because we're going we're gonna to talk about it again towards the end of the sermon. Now, in Hebrews chapter 5, the author mentions two primary qualifications for a high priest. Beginning in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron was the original high priest. So, the two qualifications were this. Number one, the high priest was chosen from among men. The high priest was a representative human called to represent humanity before God. The upside to to the humanity of the high priest, according to verse 2, was that he could sympathize with the human condition. But the downside to the humanity of the high priest, according to verse 3, was that he was himself a sinner. He had to offer sacrifices to atone for his own sins, too. So that was the first qualification. The high priest was a human. 
Number two, the the second qualification mentioned here was that only God could appoint the high priest. The high priest was called from among men, but called by God. No one was permitted to appoint himself high priest. And the essential claim of, of the verses that follow, verses five to 10, is that Jesus has met both of these qualifications. Verse five. Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So these these verses establish that Jesus has met qualification number two. Jesus did not appoint himself to the priesthood. He was appointed by God. And the author of Hebrews makes this point by quoting from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and then from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And side note real quick, I'm not going to be talking about Melchizedek today uh, because we're going to spend a couple weeks talking about him uh, later this month, all right? But again, Psalm 2 and Psalm 10 are quoted to show that the high priesthood of Jesus was always intended by God. Qualification number two has been met. Jesus did not appoint himself to the high priesthood. He was appointed by God the Father. Now, qualification number one, verse seven. In the days of his flesh, while on earth, that is, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Most commentators agree that verse 7 is referring to the Garden of Gethsemane, but the basic point is that Jesus was human. He was mortal. He was subject to death. He was needy and dependent It's even true that Jesus, in the days of his flesh, had to learn and grow and be made fit for his role as our high priest. Verse 8, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest. What could it possibly mean that Jesus had to learn obedience? And why are we told that Jesus was made perfect? I thought Jesus was already perfect. I thought Jesus was already obedient. Well, the idea is not that Jesus had to learn to stop sinning. The idea is that Jesus, as a son, had to submit himself to his father's authority and will. He had to become his father's apprentice. He had to prepare himself for the high calling to which his father was calling him. Picture a man who has has worked very hard over the years to build a successful business from the ground up. Often, as, as such a man ages, he begins to think about handing over the business to his son. And if the man is wise, he will take care to ensure that the son is hardworking and knowledgeable and competent. Fatherly guidance is vital to to any son's inheritance. 
we all know what can happen when a father fails to prepare his son to take over the family business. The son comes in, having, having recently graduated from some fancy university, and he takes the office right next door to his father, ruling his employees from above, aloof and unsympathetic and largely absent, leeching off of his father's stature, taking all of his father's hard work for granted as he enjoys lavish business lunches and golf outings and a company car and and back-to-back vacations. When that sort of son takes over the business, the business starts to fall apart. But it doesn't have to be like that. A wise father will ensure that his son learns the business from the ground up. The son will begin in the workshop or on the factory floor. He'll visit the suppliers and he'll see where the materials come from. He'll learn to negotiate. He'll learn to make a sales pitch. He'll get familiar with the finances. And only after he has developed that that first-hand knowledge of how the business works will he be promoted and given an office of his own. And I think this this helps us to understand verses 8 and 9. God the Father is a wise father. Although Jesus was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest. Look, like a good son, like a good son, Jesus submitted to his father's guidance and preparation. He learned all about the family business from the ground up. He started on the factory floor. He became one of us. And now he has ascended to the corner office and he runs the business from above. So so the gospel is not divine nepotism. Jesus is not our great high priest merely because his father owns the company. Jesus started on the factory floor. And he actually proved himself to be the best candidate for the job. He received no special treatment. In fact, he suffered a great deal. And we on the factory floor respect him for that. He, he of course, had his father's love and his father's favor all along from the very beginning. But he also worked hard. He is rightfully our high priest. And that brings us back to chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. According to Hebrews, the the sinlessness of Jesus is not a deficiency when it comes to his priesthood. The sinlessness of Jesus does not make him somehow less sympathetic toward us. Actually, it's, it's the person who overcomes sin and temptation who understands, who truly understands sin and temptation. We who give in to sin and temptation will always be limited in our understanding of it. But Jesus knows full well 
the power of sin and temptation because Jesus alone exhausted the power of sin and temptation. And because he overcame, he he has passed through the heavens. Jesus has ascended into heaven, into the very throne room of God. He started on the factory floor and now he's in the corner office. And what is he doing there? What is Jesus doing up there? Just chilling out? Basking in his own glory? No. Romans 8 tells us that he is actively interceding for us. Meaning he is speaking to to God the Father on our behalf. After all, that is the job of a high priest. When we pray... When we pray, we are not shouting across a wide and bottomless canyon. We are not trying to catch the attention of an aloof and distracted God. Our Heavenly Father is not preoccupied with His cell phone as we are trying to get His attention. When we pray... Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father saying, did you hear that, Father? Did you hear that? He's with me. She's with me. Please act on their behalf. Because he started on the factory floor, he is able to be our representative before the Father. He understands what it's like to be us, and so he advocates for us. And more than that, he he sympathizes with us. We have a sympathetic great high priest. Therefore, verse 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a, a subtle reference to the day of atonement here. I told you we would come back to it. As we read in Leviticus 16, On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the sin offering upon what was called the mercy seat. The Holy of Holies uh, symbolized the the throne room of God, and the mercy seat within the Holy of Holies symbolized the throne of God. So when the author of Hebrews refers to the throne of grace, it's, it's a reference to the mercy seat. Prior to Jesus, only the high priest was permitted to approach the mercy seat. And only once per year. But verse 16 invites, verse 16 invites all of us to approach the throne of grace as often as we need it. Which is all the time. How can this be? Why do we enjoy this new level of access to God? New level of access into the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God himself. It's because Jesus has put an end to the sacrificial system. Jesus has atoned for sin once and for all. When Jesus died, the the veil in the temple was torn, which opened the way into the Holy of Holies, into the throne room of God. The day of his crucifixion was the final day of atonement. 
Jesus is both our spotless sin offering and our sinless high priest. According to chapter 5, his suffering on our behalf is precisely what qualified him to serve as our great high priest. And as our great high priest, Jesus has passed through the heavens and entered into the throne room of God and sprinkled his own blood before the Father. Your sins are atoned for. Your sins are atoned for. You are forgiven. When the Father looks at you, he he sees you through a blood-colored lens. Through, Through a Jesus lens. He looks upon you with favor. He looks upon you with fatherly delight. Let us then, with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near to the mercy seat that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We come to the throne of grace as those who need mercy and grace, but we also come to the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness. We, we, we tend to mess this up one way or the other. Some of us, some of us grovel before the throne of grace meaning we, we come with zero confidence. We fall on our knees and we, and we crawl and we cringe and we beg because we think that's what God wants. But to approach the throne of grace in this way implies that the blood of Christ was somehow inadequate to cleanse you fully. On the other hand, some of us, some of us saunter into the throne room of God. We approach the throne in in sweatpants and flip-flops with our earbuds in because we're, we're not convinced we were ever all that bad off to begin with. But to approach the throne of grace in that way fails to appreciate the costliness and the preciousness of the blood of Christ. And so we come needy, but we also come confidently. Because even though we still sin and even though we need the help, we approach the throne of grace knowing, knowing that our great and sympathetic high priest awaits us there. We are all varying degrees of of fearful and insecure and anxious and hurt and guilty and ashamed We are tempted, we are tried, and suffering, and abandoned, and betrayed, and bereaved. But the throne of grace is near to us. The throne of grace is near to us, and we access it through prayer. We have a standing offer for divine help. A standing offer for divine help. And if we're honest, most of us do not avail ourselves nearly enough. We look to the self-help gurus. We look to psychiatry or personality tests. We look to substances. We look to Netflix or social media. 
And all the while, all the while, our great high priest is waiting to extend mercy and grace in our time of need. Go to him in prayer. Go to him early and often. He sees you. He understands you. His advocacy on your behalf is all-powerful and effective. He is eager to extend his mercy and grace. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are our judge, and yet your seat is called mercy, and your throne is called grace. Jesus, thank you for your great and sympathetic advocacy, your tireless advocacy on our behalf. Holy Spirit, prompt us, prompt us toward in the direction of the throne of grace in our time of need. Nudge us, drag us before the throne of grace if necessary. We need your help. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.